Chosen Little Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements in the scriptures that have become real to us so that we can draw more power from them because we need that power in our lives to help us keep becoming more holy and be anchored in and coming towards Christ. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and this is going to be a short cast, uh, the last of a long bunch because it's a huge reading list for this week, but uh, this one will be about Solomon. Uh, so, we're, we're really only going to touch on a couple of elements. We could do several short casts or, or full podcasts on uh, the chapters that we're reading for Solomon today and, and the chapters that we're not reading, but uh, we've already had so many hours of podcasts for this week already. We're just going to make this um, uh, touching on, uh, we're selectively touching on important elements. Chapter one of First Kings is worth noting. Now, let's also be clear that as we go from Second Samuel to First Kings, there's not really a break. Just think of them as all the same book. It's just it just keeps going. Same storyline, probably the same redactors or a team of redactors, and so on. In any case, <clears throat> um, the story starts with a kind of a crisis. David is old enough that he really isn't uh, able to do much anymore. This is kind of highlighted by the fact that he can't even heat himself. And so he has someone who keeps him warm and so on. And uh, Nathan uh, is aware that, that it's been prophesied that Solomon would become king, but that David has another son, Adonijah, who is aiming at becoming king, right? So this, the stories of the Bible, especially uh, this part with uh, first and second Samuel and first and second Kings, have all the intrigue that you could find in any Shakespeare or, uh, I mean, and Shakespeare stories are often based in real life as well, but any of the, the dramas of the kings of Europe or anything else, I mean, there's all sorts of intrigue and stuff going on here. So Adonijah wants to be king. He sees that his father is getting less and less able, and he can kind of get away with things. And so he is uh, starting to act like a king to make it so that he becomes the default king. And he is the next oldest son. Uh, now that Absalom is dead. So Adonijah just starts doing kingly things and he gets quite a following. A number of very important um, and powerful people are following and supporting him as king. And uh, there are also a number of important and powerful people that will support um, Solomon as king. Adonijah uh, it kind of comes to a head when he is holding a feast that is the kind of feast that only a king would hold. And he does it at Ein Mogel, which is the spring uh, just south of Jerusalem, that is really the border between the territories of Judah and Benjamin, so just over the hill from Jerusalem, so you can't quite see it from Jerusalem, uh, but it's as close to Jerusalem as you can get without being visible from Jerusalem. So that's where he is when Nathan comes in and, and uh, hatches a plan with Bathsheba to say, okay, you go talk to him, I'll come talk to him, and we'll say, hey, what's going on here? Um, and, uh, and David decides it's time to act. Um, and again, you have some key players on both sides. We won't get into all that drama, although it's fun. Uh, you can look at my uh, YouTube uh, playlist on uh, class videos to get some more information about this. One of the important things to note here is that Solomon will ride to be anointed. So he is anointed king. Kings are Mashiach or Messiahs. They are anointed ones. Um, he will ride to the gate, which is where important things happen is at the gate. He will ride to the gate on an ass. Uh, this is important for a couple of reasons. One, uh, it's a long kind of tradition uh, in the Near East because they were riding on, on donkeys to be anointed king before there were horses. 
And so after they got horses, the, the tradition was frozen and they'd ride on donkeys. But second, and I would guess that most kings after this, this is the time that we hear about this story, but most of the time kings are going to ride, <laughs> excuse me, kings are going to ride to their coronations on donkeys. I would guess that they, Solomon's successors do that. So that makes uh, the savior when he rides to the same area uh, on a donkey and people start to acknowledge him as king, it makes that all the more poignant. Uh, he's drawing on a long tradition of being David's son at that point, a, a son or a descendant of David, rightful king. Uh, so that's very important. And uh, Solomon will become king and Adonijah will not. We won't go through all the stories of the way Solomon consolidates his kingship. David will tell Solomon, uh, here are some people you're going to need to take care of. Uh, and and what it basically seems to me is that David is saying, you know, I was powerful enough in my position as king that I could let these people go and get away with some things. But this is the first time that Israel is ever having a son succeed a father. Uh, that's not, and Solomon's not the oldest son. Uh, this isn't a given. Solomon's position is not immediately safe and sure and strong. And David gives him some practical advice of people that he needs to kind of take care of. Uh, and by take care of, I don't mean in a nice way. Uh, he needs to get rid of if he's going to, th these are people who are threats to his, to Solomon. They will do something to make it so Solomon doesn't remain king. And David tells him, you need to, you need to take care of this. Uh, basically, you're not in the position I was in. You can't extend that same kind of mercy, at least right now. Solomon will eventually be in that kind of a position and become immensely powerful, powerful enough that, um, Every uh, prophecy that Samuel made about kings uh, taking things from the people that hadn't already been fulfilled in Saul or David or is fulfilled in Solomon. There's nothing left by the end of Solomon that, that isn't fulfilled. Uh, but Solomon becomes very powerful and, and consolidates uh, the kingdom and centralizes things in the kingdom. One of the things that we're always interested in is this story in chapter three. Um, we're going to start in verse five. In Gibeon. So let's talk about where that is. It's just north of Jerusalem. Uh, if you get on kind of the outermost hills of Jerusalem and you can look down and see Gibeon, this is the same place where Joshua had the uh, uh, battle and the hailstones came and the sun and the moon stood still. This is where Solomon will be making sacrifices. And he, he makes a tremendous amount of sacrifices. And um, then in verse five, uh, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give thee. So he's basically giving him a blank check. And the answer of Solomon is so profound. Solomon said, thou hast shewed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness. Again, we know that, that David fell uh, in some ways, but also he was always... Um, loyal to the Lord. He did not worship other gods. He, he promoted worshiping only Jehovah and uh, his entire life. And, and uh, that's going to be the model that God's going to ask all the other kings to follow. And as we've said, he certainly repented after the murder of Uriah. Um, and he says, thou hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. So Solomon uh, is acknowledging, hey, I've succeeded. It was the first time this happened, and we're grateful for this. But he's making reference to that Davidic covenant is what he's really making reference to. So then we get uh, verse uh, 7. 
And now, O Lord, my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. So basically what he's saying, and this is the same thing that we all feel often, is uh, the guy before me was good at this and knew what he was doing, and I don't know what I'm doing. And that's going to be the case with almost every calling, every serious thing we're asked to do. One of the great things about the Old Testament is we see this again and again and again with Enoch and with Moses and with Gideon and so on and so on. Here we have it with Solomon, this stark humility saying, wow, you've asked me to do some serious stuff and I'm not up for it. I need your help. What a tremendous lesson that the, the Old Testament pounds home to us again and again to recognize our need and humility and to go to the Lord and see how God answers. Now look at verse 8. Thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen a great people that cannot be numbered. So he's outlining, this is a huge task you've given me to take care of these people. Give, therefore, thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? What a tremendous thing. He does not ask for anything of himself. Instead, he comes in humility and he says, you've asked me to do something. I don't know how to do it. I am not capable of doing it. Please make me capable of taking care of your people. Oh, what a great thing, right? I'm, as I'm reading this, I'm just thinking I've been bishop for almost two years now. Uh, it, it might be easy to start to think that I know what I'm doing and I have to, I read this and I think I'm reminded, actually, I have no idea. There's no way to do this. Uh, no matter how good and smart and experienced someone is, there's no way to do this calling uh, and fulfill God's word if you're doing it on your own. Uh, you, you have to have God's help. And it's not true of just being a bishop, right? But it's, but it's good to have a check every now and then as we are in different roles for a little while. Uh, the tendency is to start to think we know what we're doing and every now and then have this check. Uh, how am I doing as the, the uh, young women's advisor for the younger young women's class? How am I doing as the uh, primary teacher for uh, the eight-year-olds and so on? Uh, am I getting to where I'm relying on myself or am I still desperately relying on God? And we all need to remain in the case where we're desperately relying on God. God certainly likes this attitude. Uh, and he tells him, because you haven't asked for um, anything for yourself, not long life, no riches, uh, you haven't asked for your enemies, but because you asked for an understanding heart, then I'm going to give you a wise and understanding heart. And I'll also give you all this stuff you didn't ask for. Now, that's fantastic. This is a way of saying, seek first for the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you, right? Here we see it in action. We see it happening, um, that when you seek to do God's will, and you say, all I want is to take care of your people and do what you want me to do, and I need your help to do it, that then God will give you that and more. But if you're seeking something else first, you're probably not going to get either. Right? Tremendous lessons, tremendous lessons. And then we have all sorts of stories where, where it's demonstrated that Solomon is blessed with wisdom, with an understanding heart, and he'll do God's will. And we have all sorts of stories that are going through talking about how powerful he is. And he's got the tax districts and uh, he builds, uh, he starts to build a temple. He builds a palace for himself also that is huge. But the real key thing is that he builds this temple, right? Remember that David had wanted to build the temple and wasn't allowed to, but he starts to gather the material. Solomon will gather even more material. They have created this little empire where they've conquered not only the area that was uh, supposed to be theirs, but other kingdoms around them and control them and tax them uh, and and so on. I always remember uh, one time I was with Jeff Chadwick in Amman. So Rabat Amman, remember that's where uh, 
Uriah died, but and David was finding a camp and camp through that area. And they had on display outside their little museum a little um it's it's a, a particular type of column head. So you know how their columns and then their heads, the columns that whatever the columns holding up rests on. Uh, that was typical only of uh, Israelite culture uh, really early on, like in uh, basically the times of David Solomon and a little bit thereafter. And it was kind of like, oh, did, uh, Jeff looks like he's like, oh, that's Solomon's fingerprint right there. And it probably was. I mean, possibly someone else, but most likely it's Solomon who had whatever structure was built uh, that was big enough to need a column like that. Uh, it was probably Solomon who had it built, right? It just all these little tidbits were like, ah, see the Bible story, it really did happen just right here. Um, there's some other fun things about Solomon uh, where Solomon built gates uh, in a bigger, grander style and, and walls in a bigger, grander style than the people before and after him. And interestingly, as you look through this stories and you, it says, uh, here are the places where he really built big cities and you go to those cities, those are the ones that have those gates in that exact style. Uh, it's, it's just so fascinating and fun to see the uh, Bible come to life in the archeological remains and the stones there, it's, it's, it's good fun stuff. Solomon really was remarkable, but uh, what we wanna focus on is two things, one, the temple and, and two, Solomon's falling. Uh, so we get the temple where he finally gets this amazing, beautiful building built uh, that is absolutely spectacular with gold. It seems like the, the walls are covered with gold inside and out. Uh, there, it may be that I'm misreading this. You can read it a couple of ways, but it looks to me, we usually uh, make all the depictions with uh, stone walls. We know the inside of the walls were covered with gold. And it looks to me like the outside were also covered with gold. I mean, this, this uh, building, I haven't seen a depiction of it. That it seems to match the majesty that is being described in the uh, the text in a number of ways. It's, it's just a fantastic building. Um, and when they go to dedicate it, I love this part. Um, we're gonna be in, in 1 Kings 8, and I'm gonna start in verse 10, when they go to put the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand a minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Uh, and it, this is a great thing. Uh, uh, so I have a little article about this. Uh, I think you can find it on uh, BYU's institutional repository, BYU Scholar Archive. Um, but it's a Sperry Symposium article uh, that you can probably find at the Religious Studies Center website as well. It's rsc.byu.edu. Uh, you should be able to find this article. Just search my name, you'll be able to find it. But where I go through and um, outline uh, an interesting phenomenon that uh, in the Old Testament, when you have descriptions of God, uh, someone seeing God or coming into God's presence, they are filled with both elements of light and darkness. Right? So you get this glory, at which seems to be referring to light, but also a darkness and a cloud. And look at the thing Solomon says in verse 12, then spake Solomon, the Lord said that he would dwell in thick darkness. That's not what we're expecting, is it? Well, the, the fact of the matter is that when you see God, there's always an element of revealing and hiding because God is revealing himself to you, but he cannot reveal himself in his full glory. We learned this in Moses chapter one. He can't reveal himself in his full glory uh, and have us live or stay here on the earth. Uh, and so every time there's revealing, there's also an element of hiding. And so you always have this, this cloud and the, the light uh, in the same place. But in any case, it's clear that God is accepting this temple 
they they can't even stay in the Holy of Holies. It becomes so full of his brightness and then apparently a cloud to protect them. It's like a veil, right? The cloud serves like a veil. It's, it's, it really is a veil. Uh, so they, they are forced out of the Holy of Holies and they have the cloud to protect them and to protect God from their unholiness. But at the same time, everyone can tell God has accepted this place. And so then we get this dedicatory prayer that is incredible in, in chapter 8, verse 12, where Solomon um, will, will, he starts out um, standing before the people with his, his, his uh, palms out before them. Before he's done, he'll be kneeling in front of the altar um, and so on. Just uh, somehow we missed that, but some, something happens in between there. Um, and uh, he gives this fantastic prayer. And I'm going to highlight just a couple of important elements of this prayer. Um, let's look at, see, uh, verse 28. Yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant, to a supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee this day, that thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even towards the place which thou hast said, my name shall be there. Now we're going to uh, skip down a little bit. Verse 31. If any man trespass against his neighbor and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear and the oath come before uh, thine altar in this house, then hear thou in heaven and do and judge thy servants, condemning the wicked to bring uh, his way upon his head and justifying the righteous to give him according to his righteousness. So we've got elements of, of justice, redemption and justice in here. Uh, look at verse 33. When thy people Israel be smitten down before the enemy because they have sinned against thee and shall turn again to thee and confess thy name, and pray, and make supplication unto thee in this house, then hear thou in heaven, and forgive the sin of thy people Israel, and bring them again unto the land which thou gavest unto their fathers. Just totally prophetic, and yet a supplication at the same time. When we've sinned, and things have gone wrong, and we turn to you, please forgive us, and bring us back here. When the heavens shut up, and there's no rain, because they have sinned against thee, if they pray towards this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou afflictest them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people, Israel, that thou teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon the land. If there be famine in the land and, and so on, uh, what prayer and supplication be made by any man of all the people and so on, and they spread forth their hands, it's a gesture of supplication, then hear thou in heaven and thy dwelling place and forgive and do and give to every man according to his ways. Um, let's go to verse 44. If thy people go out in battle against their enemy, whithersoever thou shalt send them, and shall pray unto the Lord toward the city which thou hast chosen, and toward the house that I have built for thy, thy name, then hear thou in heaven their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. If they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not, and thou be angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captives unto the land of the enemy far or near. Yet, if they shall bethink themselves in the land whither they were carried captives, and repent, and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carry them captive, saying, We have sinned, and have done perversely, we have committed wickedness, and so return unto thee with all their heart, and with all their soul. Do you hear the... the uh, Echoes of the covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that we have to love God with all our heart, with all our soul. Um, so when, in a way, you could say when they're really keeping covenant, but it, it is especially this most important element of the covenant, loving God with our heart and soul. So when we do that, uh, when we're in the land of our enemies, which led us to be captive and so on, 
and they pray towards thee in their house. Verse 49, then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven, thy dwelling place, and maintain their, thy, their cause, and forgive thy people that have sinned against thee, and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against thee, and give them compassion before them who carry them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they be thy people and thine inheritance. Again, you hear the covenant, right? Thy people and thine inheritance, which thou brought us forth out of Egypt from the midst of the furnace of iron. Um, and after this, the, the verse 54, this Solomon makes an end of his prayer and he stands, uh, he'd been kneeling, but he stands and blesses and so on. But I want you to think, if you were to go through all that, we just read quite a bit, really the, the major portion of that dedicatory prayer, and you can see the theme in it. It's, it's uh, covenant, atonement, and forgiveness, right? Uh, Solomon acknowledges again and again, we are going to sin, but when we repent, when we acknowledge our sin and repent and turn back to the forgive us and accept us back. That's a fantastic theme. Uh, that's what the temple is about. But remember, the temple is symbolic of our journey in life. And I'd invite you, if you don't remember, to go back and listen to the episode where we went through the symbolic journey of the tabernacle. But it's symbolic of our journey in life. And the theme then of this temple, at least Solomon's temple, according to Solomon in his dedicatory prayer, is when we repent, accept us back. And he will. And he does. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff uh, and powerful stuff. And I hope we never forget it, that those verses that I read in many ways should be our guiding point in life. We will stray. And then we need to think and return to God with all our heart, keep covenant, and he'll forgive us. And we can go back to the temple or symbolically regain his presence again. Fantastic stuff. So the sad thing is, of course, how the story of Solomon ends, which is despite how wonderful he is and all the good stuff he does, he marries uh, not only Israelite women, but foreign wives. This is almost certainly um, political alliances. And those foreign wives, as he tries to make them happy, he starts to give into their pressures to build things for foreign gods. Now, there is an ironic thing here. He builds them on uh, places where there are, are cemeteries. And so in Jewish eyes or, or Israelite eyes, uh, he's building them on desecrated, unclean land. And so in a way, he's kind of desecrating these gods even as he builds something for them. But most likely that's just kind of a, a way he's finding of, of dancing around a bad issue. Uh, in the end, I, I mean, I don't know, Solomon's fall is not like Saul's or David's, but, uh, he also, this amazing, magnificent king that we're spending very little time on, has his fall. Uh, and the three great kings, these are the three kings who rule over all of Israel. There are only three who rule over this united monarchy. And uh, we would say united kingdom, but someone's using that name currently. So we'll, we'll call it the united monarchy. Uh, there are only three, and they were great men. Each one of them had such fantastic beginnings, and each one of them seriously stumbled. And in each time, it seems to be, uh, well, I'll say for Saul and Solomon, it seems to be giving in to the pressures of the world. As they get so powerful, uh, they, they in some ways become less powerful because the power seems to somehow make them beholden to the world. And being beholden from the world strips them of their power. Uh, it's an interesting conundrum and irony. Uh, whereas uh, if they would have just stayed faithful to God, they wouldn't have had their problems, but they gave in to the world and that took them away from God. 
Oh, if we could learn that lesson right now. Oh, oh if we could learn that lesson. David's is a little bit different in that uh, he saw something he wanted and seemed to be so powerful that he didn't know how to say no to himself. And then he tried to cover his sins. That's probably the greatest lesson we can get from David is repent quickly. Repent quickly. If he had done what his son Solomon talked about in his dedicatory prayer, oh, what a different story. But maybe the major lesson then is that none of us are in a place where we can ever feel safe. The longer we are doing well, the more we need to be careful that we don't get comfortable in that. We can never be sure we're safe. We always have to be doing those things that will keep us humble, will keep us having these checks in our lives and uh, making sure that we're, we're staying humble and coming back to God. That's the beauty of reading these stories. That's the beauty of the scriptures is that as we keep reading about people who made mistakes, hopefully we can learn from those mistakes. We can say, okay, wait a minute. Is this happening to me right now? And it's never a question of if. Instead, to change it, how is this happening to me right now? And when we ask that question, we can identify ways we need to get a little more humble, a little closer to God. And if we'll learn from these uh, scriptures, then we aren't doomed to repeat them. But we can also remember, as we just learned from Solomon's Prayer, when we do make mistakes, return to God with all your soul and with all your heart, and He will accept you back. For that I am eternally grateful, and of that I testify with gratitude in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.